listeners, we'd like to thank our supporters on Patreon. That is Nick, Justin, Matt, Teddy, Paul, Grace, Sam, Jory, Shelly, Tara, Rachel, Abby, Peter, the Reverend Langenstein, and Annalise. Thank you for your money. Welcome to the lineup, Peter. We uh, do not recognize your name. So if you just want to send us a message telling us who you are, that'd be fine. But if not, you know, mystery, mystery donor. Mystery Pete. I've never heard of the name Peter as well. And so <laughs> hopefully, hopefully somebody can tell us where that comes from, what it means. The etymology. All, yeah. all, hey guys, all that good stuff. Guys, what if, what if Peter is the rock? <laughs> if, what if, what if Dwayne the rock Johnson is mystery Pete? So first of all, if that's true, we better be getting more more money from him. It is not a lot. What happens? What happens when the Rock goes to the bathroom? What happens? He dwains his Johnson. <laughs> the podcast is done. We will never top that moment. <laughs> Uh, well, uh, thank you, Pete. You are the people's patron. You are. Ah, that's uh, good. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah. And your money helps make this show happen. That's true. And Pete, if you want to keep making the show happen, along with the rest of our uh, supporters, you should continue. And for the world, you should do this as well. You can show your support over at patreon.com slash WTHIAP. Uh, you can get access to our patron-only podcast feed including some very depressing bonus content. It was a bummer uh, this week, yeah. It was a bummer. It was a bummer. We have other ones in the can somewhere that aren't so much like that, but, you know, it's grief. And I enjoyed re- I enjoyed re-listening to just how um, disassociated I was <laughs> during that episode. <laughs> As yeah. I was like, you know what? My grief might actually be too overwhelming, and so... I'm not going to do this, uh, but you can listen to that. You can also get our Patreon-only podcast that Ian and Joe record, which is called Pillow Talk, where they talked teaching, uh, teaching, I assume, in general, or are you now teaching pillows? Remember, I assume Pillow Talk is about conversations about pillows. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a... There's a there's some real uh, groundbreaking pedagogical research around uh, you. Well, yeah, yeah, teaching pillows and uh, using pillows, pedagogical pillows, if you will, <laughs> yeah, using sure. pillows for teaching purposes. No, no, yes. I. I understand that. Oh, no, we actually managed to make teaching depressing during our well. talk yeah. as well, uh, just because, you know, the world's a depressing place. So if you just want to be bummed out for a little bit, um, <laughs> that's what our Patreon is for. Yeah, yeah. It's a really good uh, feed to listen to right before you go uh, get your med check with your psychiatrist if you really want to up your meds and you yeah. need that extra influence. Or listen, uh, we provide a service. Yes, yeah. yes. This is our ministry, folks, folks. <laughs> Anyway, you can also, if none of this was appealing, you can rate, review, and subscribe and share us on social media or just keep listening because that would be great. It, it really would. And so buckle up, listen up. And anyway, here's the show. One, two, five, nine. Robin Breeze, servant leader, rector, reverend, deacon, elder, what the hell? Welcome to What the Hell is a Pastor, a podcast about life and set-apart ministry. 
Each week we draw on our experiences and challenges as current and former pastors to figure out what the hell it is that pastors do and how to do it as best we can. Listeners, this week on the podcast, we have Ian with us Hello. to talk about bishops and the state of the UMC and, you know, just kind of how we're feeling about our denomination amidst disaffiliation. So, Ian, how are you? What are you thinking? <laughs> uh, I'm doing okay. Uh, actually, pretty good. Pretty good. Um, we did just have, like, pancakes. We just had pancakes. Uh, I'm on uh, new ADHD meds, which is uh, which is great. Um <laughs> And so I'm also kind of all over the place, which maybe feels like the opposite of what ADHD meds is supposed to be. But, you know, it's an adjustment period. Talk to us about there's a new bishop in Upper New York. There is. Talk to us about the new bishop. And uh, we were at his installation service and I talked a little bit about that. But I would love to hear you participated in it. I'd never seen any of this before. So tell us what it's like to be friends with a bishop. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, yeah. So it's actually uh, that was the... Um, the second installation service that I have ever been a part of, the first installation service that I was a part of was a month before that for uh, Virginia Annual Conference's new bishop, uh, Bishop Sue Hubbard Johnson, where I dropped in and... Uh, did you do any singing? I did, yeah. yeah. I was in the installation service choir, um, which was uh, a great experience. Was it? Yeah, it was fine. Okay. It was fine. Um, it was it was all the way down in like Richmond, and so I could only like go for like the rehearsal the day of, gotcha. um, because I wasn't going to be traveling to Richmond more than I needed to. But there is definitely there. So like there is a an order for the installation uh, of a bishop uh, that exists because I've uh, seen it uh, in Virginia, and I've seen it in upper New York now and I've seen like bits and pieces from some other annual conferences. Um, and it's a, it's a weird service. In uh, what way? Yeah. Like, so my, my role in the upper New York's installation service was giving uh, Bishop Hector a, a lamp, which we, we, there's this section in the order of the service that exists and every time there's a bishop installed anywhere like they do this we're like people from the annual conference give the new incoming bishop uh, a gift that represents an element of the episcopacy uh, it exists in the, the Book of Worship, the United Methodist Book of Worship. You got to hunt it down and find it because it's not just called like order for the installation of a bishop. I forget what it's called. Oh. Um, but I think there have been some additions added to it because if you look in that one, uh, lamp is not part of it. But like you give the bishop a lamp uh, and ask the bishop to uh, be the light that guides us and teaches us. So that we may be a light that uh, shines on a hill and is never extinguished. Oh. Kind of a, a situation. But, like, they also get a Bible. They get a stole. They get a... A globe? A globe. Yeah. They get a... This uh, is the dumbest shit I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> I, was, I was like... Somebody was like, has to say it. We're, it. <laughs> we're talking complete nonsense. I actually... I kind of want to stop the episode. Can we be done? 
Like, like, and that's bishops. Bishops should, this is an institution that we should have put an end to years and years ago. <laughs> this, is, this is totally worthless. But continue. Well, well so I'm trying to think um, if there was anything. They do get like their fancy bishop. Um, crook. Crook. Staff. And that to me, they also get a stole. Yep. Like so, sure, like, that's all fine. That's all. That's all. Strikes me as religious liturgy, right? Like sure, whatever. Right. And but then there is the lamp. There are these other things a that lamp, I'm like a globe. Um, so they receive a a, um, a patent and chalice. A patent and chalice. They receive a a pitcher, like like to be the fount of water, so that we remember our baptism. I mean, um, it was so many things that they had to have, like, the head deacon of the conference, <laughs> except, like, somebody would hand him to the bishop, the bishop would hand it over to this deacon, and this deacon would put it on, like, an extra altar behind the altar. That's how many gifts the bishop is getting in this part. It's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Uh, what, and, then, and then here's a sandwich to represent the fact that some people are hungry, but you need to keep your strength up, bishop. Um, <laughs> It does kind of feel like that. Here is a John Wesley bobblehead so that we remember exactly who the founder of Methodism is. Remember, the whole world is your parish. And speaking of the whole world, here's a globe. Well, that's exactly exactly what it is. That's that's why. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, The very last gift that the bishop receives in this liturgy is uh, a gavel uh, to – Oh, yeah. you know, use to preside <laughs> at our to fail to use at general conference every year. Yeah, <laughs> is a gavel with which you will never claim, and you will allow all things to fall apart. <laughs> so that's cool. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, so there's there's Ethan's uh, take on all this. That's uh, the dumbest but- shit in the fucking world. I can't even believe that. If I. <laughs> Hopefully they told those bishops that because if God forbid I've ever elected bishop and they sprung that shit on me, I'd be like, somebody give me a fucking microphone. <laughs> like, no, don't give me this garbage. Thank you for this plate of knickknacks and garbage. I I can't wait to serve the Lord now as bishop. Are there any other posters? Could, could you get me a Reservoir Dogs poster as well? Like, will that help? Oh my god! Film. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, so like the like this is it's uh, like in full disclosure, like I did not go out and buy Bishop Hector a lamp to give him. Um, these are all like things that they had lying around in the Episcopal office. Yeah, right. This is just trash in the in the conference <laughs> office. <laughs> It was a real like gas lamp though, or like it was, it was like a candle kind of a. It like, was like an oil lamp thing. Yeah, I I mean, if it was me, I literally would have like unplugged a desk lamp and just brought that in. <laughs> like I would have tried the least. Yes, Bishop, here is a flashlight. It's <laughs> <laughs> a guide your way. Attach on your keychain <laughs> so that you can always know where to put your keys. When the apocalypse comes, we have extra batteries for yes. you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but like so there's there's that element of it. There's also this really weird the the weirdest part of the service for me. Uh and I'm like trying to find out the history of this um part of the service and how it got put in is the um representatives to the jurisdictional committee on the episcopacy um are who, you know, they're, 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 the Jurisdictional Committee on the Episcopacy is the committee that 
uh, once bishops are elected and we have all of the bishops in the jurisdiction, they say, okay, Bishop A, you're going to go here. Bishop B, you're going to go there. And they make sure that all the bishops have somewhere to go. They are basically the appointive cabinet for bishops, which is, uh, we don't talk enough about that element of it. But so every annual conference has representatives on the jurisdictional committee on the Episcopacy. And so the our conference reps to the committee uh, are kind of there throughout the entire service. Um, and there is a section where they stand up and they uh, proclaim to the, like, annual conference that, you know, we, your duly appointed representatives on the Jurisdictional Committee on the Episcopacy, do hereby certify that Bishop Hector Burgos Nunez, who was elected at the 22 session of the Northeastern Jurisdictional Conference, uh, has been duly appointed to serve uh, in Episcopal leadership in the Upper New York Annual Conference, which I am like, was there a point in our denominational history where like there was some like insurrectionist bishops right. that were like, or like some insurrectionist faction that was trying to uh, get a fake bishop installed? And so now we need to have this like certification process basically that says, ah, yes, this person who has been serving as bishop for the past three months is in fact the person uh, uh, who has supposed to have been serving for these past three months. Um, that's a weird part of the service for me. Uh, it gave it really kind of um, like uh, January 6th kind of vibes. That's weird to me. Like I think of it as like maybe once upon a time, like before there were good pictures of people, it was like, yes, this is the person we elected. This person has traveled here. I certify this is actually that person rather than somebody who's just claiming to be a bishop. <laughs> you know? Right. I mean, yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, that's exactly what I'm saying. Like, it, was there some point where like someone tried to act as a bishop and then like the actual bishop showed up and there was a confusion? <laughs> like, why do we have this part of the service? It's weird. I don't know. It's weird. It's it's not as weird as some of the other shit you just said. <laughs> See, that's what I not even would say. I, I mean, it kind of parallels the, like, in an ordination service. The, like, these candidates have been approved by blah, 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 blah. So, who knows? Yeah. Uh. Um, but so how did it feel other than the, you know, the stuff that we, the, the weirdest part of the service to me, I guess, before we go on to feelings, was they have like greetings from other Episcopal leaders in the area. But mm -hmm. like the only one that showed up was the Lutheran, right? And so they did a land acknowledgement at the beginning of the service from like the annual conference, which was done by a white woman. But like, here we are. Um, but I thought the land acknowledgement was good because it was like, listen, this is this is land that we stole. We're on it now and we're going to work toward justice. And I was like, listen, if you're going to do one, that's that, that's not the worst version of it. And then the like Lutheran guy comes up and like gives greetings from the Lutherans uh, and then does another land acknowledgement and like goes about his day. But he was the most Lutheran person I think I've ever seen because he definitely had the like, I'm a cool Lutheran. I'm not like the other Lutherans with his like tied back hair. And he's got, yeah. he was, it was, it was one of those people that I was like, I never want to talk to you again. You know, it's <laughs> like a man with a ponytail and cargo shorts. I just don't need to know that human. 
I'm I'm out of it. <laughs> so anyway, that was my that was my take on the service. I about left. This Luther guy got up and I was like, I'm done. I can't. If it's gonna be this, I'm done. But I don't know any reactions to that before we talk about feelings. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know why there were no other uh, people uh, bishops from the area. I mean, the uh, like. Obviously, there's the the fact that the United Methodists and the Lutherans have a full communion agreement that uh, we're in ministry together in that particular way where um, Methodist pastors can be appointed to Lutheran churches and Lutheran pastors can be appointed to Methodist churches um, across the connection. Um, but yeah. Uh, and then there are like also like get, uh, greetings given from other like... Um, agency heads. Oh, Gio was there, yeah. Gio, uh, Gio Arroyo from uh, uh, Religion and Race was there, and then there was the president of, uh, or the, the general secretary of Discipleship Ministries was there. Oh, yeah. Um, because Bishop Hector is the, like, presiding bishop for the Board of Discipleship. Um, so... And is he new in that position? Yes. Well, uh, Webb was the president for discipleship while he was bishop of upper new york and uh webb is no longer there <laughs> or or in the denomination or in the denomination webb is doing his web thing yeah, um, he's, he's just being a traitor just being good old mark webb the traitor yep. uh, i don't know if the traitor is the white word uh because it is the white word though it is the, <laughs> it is the white word <laughs> i don't know that traitor is the right word because that involves some kind of like we didn't see it coming. <laughs> right, right. I don't know. Yeah. So, like, the the, the thing that we haven't uh, touched on is, like, the uh, Bishop Hector is the um, first Puerto Rican bishop in the whole United Methodist Church. Uh, and he's the first uh, Latinx bishop elected in the Northeastern jurisdiction. Um, and so... Uh, obviously, for me as a person from uh, Latinx uh, background, um, like that is very moving and important and special for me. And it was this very like, um, you know, celebrate the, the rest of the service was this like celebration of like that culture and that identity and um, the, the, the creed that was read and professed was um, uh, Justo Gonzalez's, like, yeah. his, uh, like oh, wow. read mm-hmm. um, in, the, in the service, which was uh, fun to watch. Like, it was, we, there were, like, all of these, like, Hispanic folks uh, present and attending, and then also a bunch of white folks present and attending and watching them trying to get through reading this creed in Spanish. Um uh yeah it was a as a white folk trying to get through this screen in spanish let me tell you it was easier than trying to read it in english while other people were reading it in spanish so there was a lot of me just being like i have done a little bit of spanish in my life let me see how this just sounds but i only like i muttered it the same way everybody else in a congregation mutters on sunday morning you know it wasn't any it wasn't any different but it was really cool to use that creed like i'd do that again yeah and it was a it was a good uh, it was a good creed. Like I would, we should be using it more. And his his sermon, uh, the bishop's sermon, was really good. 
really this for our annual conference um, after uh, what almost ten years of uh, Mark Webb uh, and his leadership, it was a um, necessary breath of fresh air and that only like it's one thing to have all that in an installation service but like everything else that i have seen bishop hector do in leadership in upper new york is giving me a lot of uh give me a lot of hope uh which is which is weird to be saying um he is leading in a very transparent way um I was going to say, do you want to talk about like the open appointments thing? Yeah. Yeah. So they're, they're publishing on the annual conference website, uh, the open, open appointments as they come up, like as it's announced that like someone is retiring or something like that. Um, they're saying, okay, this church now has an open appointment. Um, here are details about this church. Um, here are like, uh, a little mini profile about this church, uh, their, um, you know, average worship attendance, their professions of faith last year, their ministry shares budget. If you think that um, you might be feeling called to serve in this church, um, email the district superintendent um, and that can start that conversation going. So like demystifying the appointment making process is that's really good. It's great. Yeah. That's a really good thing. I agree. Well, and then opening okay. that up to like anybody who might want that, you know, cause I always, I always felt like an open appointment was something that you, if you were connected to like other pastors in your district, you would hear, Oh, you know, so-and-so is retiring. So that means that church is open. So like, you better go talk to that district superintendent. If you're not in those conversations, if you're not in those circles, then you're stuck with whatever trash the DS is going to give you, you know? So I think it just, it makes it more fair to me. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it, it doesn't like, obviously for a connectional church, we, there should be like a network, but it does kind of remove that good old boys network it right. to it. There's, uh, he's made the like disaffiliation process, like super clear super transparent and super we're not going to take any of this bullshit he's he's come out and and said that um you know there are churches that are in the disaffiliation process already um and we can't do much about that but like the discipline like the the provision for the discipline says that you have to be um leaving the denomination because of using this process because of like actual changes to the discipline not, which has not happened yet right right there are, well like it, the this provision was put in so that progressives would leave like that's why it's in the traditional plan anyways and now traditionalists are using it because well we think the united methodist church might become more liberal than than it is uh which um is uh not true right <laughs> right uh i mean it might become more liberal but it's not right now like um the the annual conference is not going to like vote to ratify any church disaffiliation unless like that church has sent its 
disaffiliation payout in full to the conference a week before the annual conference session. The the church won't be put on the docket. Hmm. And so we just had, uh, I forget the exact number, uh, but more like maybe a dozen, between a dozen and 20 churches at our special session um, last week. Uh, we approved their disaffiliation requests and some of them were like, you got to pay $275,000 to the annual conference. That'll pay for that lamp, I'll tell you. <laughs> That'll pay for that lamp. Uh, we could buy a better lamp. Yeah, so all in all, like, um, and he's been very, uh, like, active in the community and trying to, like, um, see what's needed. Like, day one, he, like, called a special town hall Um to see what is going on in Buffalo, New York. And this was like a week after the the devastating blizzard Mm -hmm. that um, uh, hit Buffalo and, um, you know, churches that were totally destroyed um, in, in that blizzard. He sent out a pastoral letter in the wake of, um, the, the shooting at Nashville this week that was the <laughs> that actually had concrete like policy transformation requests and links to like the general board of church and society's resources on like ending gun violence in America where like Webb would send a letter and say and his solution is we all just need more Jesus yeah um we need more Jesus in our lives. That's uh, the bishop that we're used to. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, I've been very impressed with um, Bishop Hector's leadership. And in my own, like, conversations with him, he is also very, like, pastoral and not in a, not in a, like, get along to get along or say the nice thing, but like pastoral in the, like, maybe we need to like, like look at the, look at the shepherds in the biblical times, right? They were, right. Uh, they, they did what they needed to do um, to protect the flock. And so, uh, yeah, I'm impressed with Bishop Hector. I've said a lot right now. <laughs> I think it's great. In all seriousness, you know, I when I'm not just interested in everything falling apart, which I still think is the best option, um, I want there to be good institutional leaders, right? Like I want leadership mm-hmm. to be um, virtuous and, and to have a vision for not just their leadership style, but like a vision for what they've been charged with leading uh, mm-hmm. that I can get behind, right? Like I'm always about that. Like I... I, I would happily, happily be a follower of, of a boss that I respected and the, who I believed in, you know. And so that's something that is, it sounds like Bishop Hector is um, the right person to do this. And I think that's really good. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I also think, you know, we make, uh, we joke about, you know, like, in terms of representation, you know, uh, all half of all billionaires should be women or whatever. But I think that like in this case, you can actually see the benefit of having somebody who is not 
not Mark Webb for one, but like uh, somebody who does not fit the mold of what we've expected, you know, like just from his experience, Bishop Hector brings in um, different commitments and a different focus and also just like a different way to celebrate and be vital. I mean, that installation service felt vital. It, um, there was a, a whole variety of people who were participating in the gift giving, as silly as it was. There was even like a youth representative. The youth representative gave the stole, you know, yeah. like there is really something to say that like we didn't have to scrounge around to find people who wanted to participate in this. Like we are people who are already on board with this person's leadership. So I thought that was I thought it was good. Yeah. Yeah. And like, where does this mean for like my position on like the episcopacy in general i mean it's it's the same thing like um there is a element always of like of anyone who is in power or has privilege of any sort of there is a bastard element to that yeah um like we can say that about um yeah we can say that about anyone who is in this kind of set apart uh privileged position the question is what are you going to do (laughs) when you have that power and privilege um and uh what are you going to do with that um institutional backing what are you going to do with the the bastardness um and um my read uh so far is that bishop hector is going to be the kind of bishop that i want a bishop to be okay yeah i mean and that's been that's been kind of a point of discussion that we've had is that like well if we're going to have an authoritarian uh, the ability for somebody to be authoritarian at least do it to like force people to do good things right right there's that yeah ethan do you have any thoughts any questions about i don't know about bishops about current bishops do we want to rag on web for a while anything you want to i mean mark webb it's it's He's been trolling around because uh, he's originally from my conference. Right. So he's been trolling around my conference, helping um, other traders uh, cement their disaffiliation. He uh, used to serve a church uh, called Bachman United Methodist, which is a, a suburb church out of outside of Harrisburg. And uh, one of the people we went to seminary with, Josh Davenheiser, is the pastor there now. And uh, Mark has been grooming Josh to, you know, do what he wants him to do. I don't know. I don't know if it's if Josh is actually going to see a, a, any benefit to his career from this. But Josh has Josh led a, a disaffiliation vote, but he didn't do it well enough because the people who just, you know, the, the church is affiliated, but they didn't know if they wanted to become global Methodists. <laughs> and so and so they disaffiliated and they were just going to go independent which absolutely freaked Josh out um, because that wasn't Josh's plan. And so Josh called Mark and Mark Webb came to Bothman to explain to his former church why they needed to become global Methodists. And, and right after they voted to disaffiliate, um, they made the Facebook page private. Then it was all via invitation. They're, they're not currently welcoming new members to Bothman or opening up the church for visitors 
They actually have said that no visitors allowed right now. Wow. Um, I mean, what it could screw it up. You never know. What if some pro gay person shows up? That's, you know, that's true. And you know what I've always said as a sign of a healthy church is uh, no visitors, you know, closed no, no doors. visitors, secrecy, yeah. closed doors, closed invitation only Facebook groups. These are all things that demonstrate that the spirit is at work. We all know that. We also um, have pioneers, you know, we saw that with pioneers, the most healthy church we've talked about. On yeah, the not, they, I'm sure they're not at all just still a workspace owned by the <laughs> Wesleyan church. <laughs> yeah, no, I actually go back to stalking their Instagram occasionally. Just it just brings me such schadenfreude. <laughs> Seeing what's going on. Oh, look, the pastors are toll booth operators somewhere now. That's nice. <laughs> It's a dream. It's a dream. One day. God, I've seen what you've done for others. And I <laughs> Do it for me. No, I I mean, I could trash Mark Webb every day, but like I have some very, I, the people of the podcast and you all know that I have very strong opinions about how it's just sort of a giant systemic failure when any church disaffiliates because the only way a church would disaffiliate from the United, if they're a United Methodist church is if they're being outright lied to. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause it's a bad idea all the way down. I mean, right. Like, like the, I can't think of, unless you want to say that one's theological convictions regarding t- the teachings of human sexuality is the only reason that matters. Like, I think that if a church wants to leave the United Methodist Church because the United Methodist Church is too conservative on this, then that's a, a, a rather interesting approach because, I mean, I can't, there, there is no Christian denomination currently working in, in, in a, with, with a certain amount of social and political power that is currently working for the liberation of gay people. Um, there are some who are very progressive and there are people like the liberation, the, the Methodist liberation connection, I, which I haven't checked in on in a while. You, you, you need to, we need to take that part out because they've, uh, they've, they've closed shop. That's an update. That's good to know. <laughs> but, but that's my point. That's my point, right? Like I just, the, so that side of it, I, I have to, I, I'm just like, guys, we're, we're already compromising, right? If if one right. of your if one of your number one priorities is the liberation of queer people, becoming a Christian is already a compromise. Hmm. I I think that's just self evidently true, right? You know, unless yeah. unless we subscribe to like an ideal form of Christianity, uh, which is fine. Like I'm okay with that, but descriptively, we've already compromised. There is not a Christian denomination that currently exists whose whose primary purpose is to liberate queer people. As far as I know, I mean, there's the the Metropolitan Community of Churches (MCCs) are like historically founded because of that. Well, uh, that's good. I mean, I'm here to yeah. I, I I defer to you. Yeah. I, I I guess what I'm my my primary point though it, 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 that I'm just trying to make is one that I've made many times in a lot of different ways, like. If if the hope and and I think this is always the hope, this is always the lie, right? The hope is by joining this new denomination or by leaving denominations behind entirely, we will experience a tremendous revival. You know, a spiritual and material revival in our churches, and um, 
perhaps I, I lack the faith, but I think that's pretty clearly not going to happen. Sure. You know, that's that this is, and, and frankly, at this point, politically, like in terms of the state of politics, you know, in, in this country, I think that most Christians already know that, you know, I think that they, they, they most like say evangelical or conservative Christians believe that God does not want there to be rights for gay people. And God does not want trans people to exist. I, I think that I think that a a plurality of Christians in this country believe that, but they also believe that God isn't going to do anything about it. Um, yeah. And and so and so since they believe that they can't convince people based on the the sort of the beauty of their ideas, they instead turn to military force. I mean, isn't that what it boils down to? Like if you can get a law on the books, that means that you can use violence to keep trans people from existing right. uh, rather, rather than a, a sort of a soft power or, a, or, or a, a, the basic changing of hearts and minds, you know? And I think that they just know that they, they, yeah. they, they understand that at this point. And, and so the say so the global methodist church you know the they're looking to to obviously create a denomination which queer people aren't allowed to be there and and they're not outright saying things like we're going to use the strength of the american military system and the police force and and the law in order to do that they're instead couching it in the spiritual language and i think your general run-of-the-mill person caught up in that is fine with imbibing that. But I think at the end of the day, I mean, the sign, right? Like if we're looking for the sign and wonder that tells them that they're right. Um, well, the sign and wonder that tells them that they're right is the shooting in Nashville. You know, the, the right. sign and wonder that tells them that they're right is, is um, when Tucker Carlson gets on his show after that and says, transgenderism and Christianity are incompatible transgenderism is anti-christ it's anti-christian they're coming for you which is what he said in a 10-minute clip right um like those are the signs right those are those are the sources of spiritual and moral and theological insight and i think that the global methodist church um and folks like them are slowly realizing that they should just embrace that it's the only way they can win sure and so this sort of i don't know i i i don't mean to throw a lot of kind of where I'm at, like negative stuff of where I'm at right now. But like, I, uh, I, I'm just not entirely sure <laughs> what, how to combat that because I can combat that at my church. And I do every Sunday, like by insisting on what I think the truth of the gospel is, but um, the gospel isn't real. It doesn't get, the, it doesn't get the job done. It doesn't get the job done. It doesn't. Uh, it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't no, get the job done. I'm not disagreeing that it doesn't get the job done. I'm. Th I. I don't understand how reality is tied to practicality. Oh my gosh! You don't. <laughs> it's. It's the same thing. It is not yeah. the same thing. There are plenty of impractical things that are real. I mean, I sure. It does not convey reality. Sure, but my. But but that's, that's the only thing that matters, right? It's fruits. Aren't fruits matter? Okay, well, let's the stick results. it in reality, Ethan. 
Okay, fine. But like, I, I think so. Like, I'd look at my two churches who are lovely. They're lovely. They're lovely. But I've already heard from folks at both of them. I already know what they want to pray about. They asked me what the best way is to pray about, you know, the, 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 uh, the Covenant School in Nashville. And I'm like, of course, we're going to pray about that. Six people are dead. That's absolutely horrific. And then I got two people who are like, you know, this is an attack on Christianity in our country, and we have to do something about it. And I and I can correct them. I can correct them in a hundred different ways, but uh, it doesn't matter. I'm not a source of their theological insight. Tucker Carlson is. Yeah, and I will agree with that. That like you it know? just leaves us being as very ineffective because these people don't want um yeah they're not interested in allowing the weak power of the gospel to do its important work within them right they they are already in a completely different spiritual landscape and i just there's we nobody has had success bringing them back from that landscape and this is this is a question that i had thought of that uh maybe whatever ian wants to say will fit into but like are mainline denominations too big to fail or are they just in a very slow process of failing? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, what I was going to say was like, they don't, they don't have the gospel and um, they don't, they haven't, they have not been uh, preached the gospel um, for the majority of their existence. Um I think that this is maybe like the the real tension with um, big denominations is that, um, and when you talk about how they are like, there are no big denominations that are founded on or doing queer liberation. Uh, I would agree with you on that. The MCC is not a big denomination by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but the big denominations have become subject to um, neoliberal market uh, logics and ways of being um, so that growth in a way that is easily measured is the only sign of vitality that mm. matters. Um, a church is vital if it is growing at 5% <laughs> every year. Uh, a church is vital if its ministry share budget is growing at 5% every year in the same way that like, national GDP or a national economy is only healthy if the GDP is growing at a rate of 5% every year. But talk to corner any like market capitalist economist at a dinner party and say, I want you to like actually draw out like what a graph of 5% annual perpetual growth looks like. And they're going to get very uncomfortable very quickly because that graph will not ever like work or uh, have any semblance. Uh, will, will never like become real uh, reality. Like it's just going to become a straight line, uh, and um, and you can't have infinite growth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, 
And, you know, all of these big denominations are really fortunate, I guess, in the fact that, like, they were very American denominations uh, and saw, like, their uh, height of... power and influence and growth in the same time that like we were having as a country, like pretty peak, growth. pretty peak growth, 5% GDP growth every year. Um, and we hitched our wagons to that logic and that way of being. And uh, that <laughs> is no longer the, the case that is not going to be the case. Um, and we need to, think about uh, and really question and wrestle with like, what are our metrics for vitality going to be? If we're even going to have metrics, concrete metrics that like, here's a table. And if you're doing this, you're vital. And if you're not doing this, you're not vital. Like, um, or is it, does it have to be a like individual congregation by congregation, disciple by disciple, conversation i we just had that conversation about gun control legislation so i don't know that that's gonna but so i think about like the church within a church movement that has zero political power that actually has an organizational structure that i'm like yes this like it is it's horizontal it's um based upon like the wisdom of others but like anybody can be overruled they don't have like one leader they rotate through positions of leadership um they can be very effective in using their money towards specific ministries and specific places but they're tiny right there's no there's no impact that they can have the way that like the catholic church can have impact and I just don't see mainline denominations ever regaining the type of influence that like the Catholic church or large evangelical churches are having right now. And so like, it, it, no matter whether um, we change our metrics of success or vitality, no matter whether we get a million bishops in that are doing good stuff, like, is this just a failed project? Like, is there anything worth saving here? Well, I think like that's for me what the gospel is, is letting go. Like um, I think the more I study the scriptures and I'm in community and attending to all the means of grace that you're supposed to attend to, like the, like the gospel message is um, to let go of the, um, power that you are so desperately trying to hold on to. Um, and that is the way of Christ. That is what um, Christ asks and calls his disciples to do, is to um, let go. And we cannot, we cannot be a body of disciples of Christ that are trying to make more disciples of Christ if we are still clinging so desperately to um, wealth, influence, and power. Okay. 
I, I think you're right, Ian. And I don't really have a but. <laughs> I really don't. I, I have a, a thought that is not really a but, it's just a thought. I think that I think that if we were to take a lot of that seriously, then we would have to have an anti-ecclesial approach to social change and social justice. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I think that, and I don't think that's a bad thing. You know, it's, in a lot of ways, it's it's similar to what I've been advocating for for a little while, and and some of the ecclesiologies that I've been re- reading in preparation for my dissertation, I think, speaks in this way too, right? Like, there, like one of the things I hate, I'll, I'll bring in Niebuhr because I don't mind anymore, but like, but like <laughs> Niebuhr's a good Niebuhr's a good counter Niebuhr's a good example of what I'm talking about letting go of actually. Hmm. Niebuhr wants to say, and I think he's right about this. Niebuhr wants to say that the more power and the more you know wealth and the more prestige that a that an entity that that a not that that a corporation or a or a you know, a non-person entity gains, um, the more responsibility we have to be in the muck of the world and use force and violence and real politic to accomplish our goals. Uh, That's just sort of the, that's just sort of the moral trade-off, right? Okay. You church, you Methodism are, are going to be a humongous organization with a tremendous amount of money and power and influence. That means that when X happens in the world, you have a responsibility to do something. And if you don't do it, you have committed an, a sin. Um, you have done something immoral. But if we were to let go of our power, if we were to think smaller, if we were to embrace weakness, if we were to embrace um, not really a sphere of our of our own that we can operate in, but but values and mission and and vision that do not include things like amassing power and stuff like that. Well, then suddenly, uh, you know, the kind of moral responsibility is not there, mm-hmm. and that's not us like getting out of it. It's us maybe saying maybe we're not equipped for this. Maybe we're not. Maybe we're not meant to do this stuff. Like the only reason, say, the church uh, has a responsibility to not just love the poor, but to but to attempt to end poverty, is because of our power. Right. Right. Where the church is always called to love the poor. That's not. That's not a thing that you can take away. Mm-hmm. But but with power and wealth comes an extra responsibility to not just love the poor, but to do something about poverty. And I'm not saying that that, that shouldn't be done, but perhaps what, what we are saying is, well, maybe the church, maybe maybe the trade-off isn't good enough. Maybe if the church is give, is, is called, it, perhaps it's not good enough for the church to amass power and then be asked to do that, because we just can't do that. We're not capable of it. We're not good at it. But we've amassed this power, and so we've damaged ourselves. But we're also called now to be morally responsible for things that we do not have the ability to handle. Right. Um, and so maybe a small-scale version of, of, of denominations or a, a sort of a weakness orientation or, a, or, or an orientation of the church that says, 
these are our core values and we are not here to go beyond them. And one of those core values is, is smallness. Um, now suddenly when somebody says, well, how come the Christians aren't ending poverty? That's not, that's not on our table. We're not, we're not called to do that. Perhaps we're, perhaps, perhaps in a coalition in a democratic coalition, we could do that, but, but not the church as the church. The church uh, on its own. Yeah. The church yeah. on its own. Because I mean, I mean, I could think about all the great things that say the the history of the Catholic Church has brought, you know, in terms of free hospitals and 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 you know, the the, the Catholic Church has used its power and influence to do unmeasurably good uni, you know, universal global things. I really believe that. I really believe that. But I don't think that we that the Catholic Church but let me try it another way. But because the church, that the Catholic Church, just like any huge entity, has this power and influence, it's also been called to bless the state, mm-hmm. and it's also been called to be the spiritual uh, justification for conquest, and it's and and it has to do these things. Like sometimes we think that maybe they had a choice; they didn't have to do these things. Well, I actually think they had to. When they or, have that power. Yeah, in order to have that power. They they would have had to give up power. And that has not been our trajectory. I mean, so I wonder with this that, uh, and I know I interrupted you, Ethan, but maybe good, this can fit into, into what you're saying. So how does the Great Commission fit into this? If we are called to go make disciples of all nations, we are called to uh, to expand and with expansion comes power. Ian threw up a finger because he was ready to answer. Yes, yes. Uh, this is uh, one of my new, uh, like, hobby horses or soapboxes is that the translation of Matthew 28, where we get go therefore and make disciples of all nations um, is one way to translate the Greek of that. um, But that word that we translate as make can also be translated as go therefore and be disciples to all the nations. And I think that, uh, well, I think both translations are perhaps equally valid or equally, uh, maybe equally faithful. But when we look at it as go, therefore, and be disciples, I think one, it recognizes that we as disciples do not make disciples. Only Christ makes disciples. And we as disciples are not Christ. We will never be Christ. Um, And it's like, my my soapbox is that like it is like supremely arrogant ecclesiology to say that like the church can ever make disciples of Jesus Christ. Um, it can't. Um, the church can be a collection of disciples that are being disciples. Um, and as we be disciples together, as we are disciples together, other disciples will be made by Christ calling disciples. And that is for this season that we're in, when the church has all of this power and influence and has 
had power and influence for 1700 years <laughs> um we don't need to be making people look like us or think like us we need to be following christ and that should be our guiding ethic that we are going to be disciples of christ first and trust that as we are disciples together christ will call new disciples Hmm. Yeah, I think I like that, Ian. Um, I also think you, we can take it, if we don't want to take that direction, we can also then lean on some of the ways in which Jesus just sort of describes the kingdom of God or, or the church or stuff like that. Like, you know, Jesus's descriptions, there's, of course, a lot of them, but like one of the descriptions that always uh, um, sticks out to me is when Jesus describes the kingdom of God like a weed. Yeah. Like mustard, like yeah. a mustard seed. It's a weed. It's a weed, right? You know, and there's there's something about that that is unglamorous and non-glorious. You know, weeds are, this is going to sound weird, but like it's invasive. It's, it's, not, it, it's not cultivated by the people in charge. Or it's not called, it, it, it's, it just sort of takes place kind of relentlessly and insensibly. And like, and I, I recognize that like some of that can be taken on, taken, taken in like kind of Chris, Christian nationalist terms, but I actually think it resists the nationalist terms a little bit too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like there's, because, because the Christian nationalists don't see themselves as invasive weeds, you know, they see themselves no. as conquering heroes. Right. You know, well, like and like the, the, to keep it going, the next part of that, like, Yes, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed and it grows both in Luke and in Matthew. Like what happens at the end is that the plant that grows provides rest and respite for the birds and the other creatures. Like it's not just that like, oh, now we have (laughs) all this mustard everywhere. Right. Now we have kudzu. Now we have like an entity that is like, providing direct relief for its surrounding environment. Um, And that is definitely where the Christian nationalists fall short. It's we're just going to be conquering heroes uh, for the sake of being conquering heroes. And that's where the conversation ends. We're not going to be providing direct relief for our communities. Right, right. I tend to think, and this is something that I, I I'm coming to because I'm there's going to be a substantial ecclesiology section to my dissertation, at least as it stands now, and like and one of the things that I I think I'm going to be offering to at least like North American white ecclesiology is is our desire to become more modest, like like a humble ecclesiology that 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 attacks both this kind of triumphalistic Christian nationalism. And this admittedly better, but still not what I'm looking for, kind of triumphalistic social gospel liberative idea as well, mm. right? Where, where like, I think that both in their way, in different ways, but in their way lead to a kind of um, grand vision for Christian ecclesiology that I actually think is counterproductive to the way in which it's meant to work. 
Right. Like sometimes uh, Niebuhr, is, Niebuhr is not the first one to say this. Lots of people say this in lots of different contexts. But like in at the end of Children of Light and Children of Darkness, which is the book Niebuhr wrote during World War II, he, he suggests like that that a turn to religion has and, and in Niebuhr's mind he has he is uh, sort of a mainline Christian religion you know in his mind but like a turn to religious thinking and religious ways of life and religious values he sees uh, can be really helpful for um, cultivating a society with virtue and strength to resist uh, some of the evils of capitalism and some of the evils that he sees at least of, of communism and certainly the evils of fascism right Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and it's a perfectly fine argument. We've heard that argument in other less helpful ways, right? Anytime uh, an evangelical says we need more, you know, religion to, to counteract gun violence, you know, they're making a similar argument, right? But, like, the paradox of the argument is that is just not how it works. Like, if we're just going to use Christianity, that is not why people become Christians, People, right. People don't become Christians because it's advantageous socially. Like, like, sure, they do that, like, if in order to maybe get ahead socially, but not to make the world a better place. Uh-huh. You know, I didn't become a Christian out of a out of some tender regard for my belief that the gospel can make the world better. You know, I think it could. I think it can. But that's not why I became a Christian. I became a Christian because once upon a time I was gripped by Jesus of Nazareth. Once upon a time, you know, the the grace of God came upon me and I was like, it's real. It's all real. Right. Like, like, that's why I'm a Christian. If, 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 if the gospel had to be socially effective to create justice, well, my word, nobody would be Christians. Right. You know, because it's just a pipe dream at this point. It's just the potential or or just happens in isolated pockets, right? The gospel yeah. seems to be just as capable of creating uh, oppression as it is of liberating oppression, right? Yeah. What the Hell is a Pastor is a part of the Disruptive Disciples podcast network. Our theme song is written by Joe Shomolf, performed by Joe Shomolf, Ian Oriola, and Paul Oriola, and produced by Paul Oriola. Email us at whatthehellisapastor at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WTHIAP, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash WTHIAP, where you can get access to pillow talk, merch, signed cards, custom essays, and so much more. Thanks for listening, and be kind to your bodies, friends.